Welcome to the second season of SeaTech Voices, The Risk Perspective, the podcast that brings you expert insights to today's hot topics in healthcare cybersecurity, compliance, and privacy. Each episode of The Risk Perspective Season 2 features an inside listen into the conversations between SeaTech thought leaders, subject matter experts, and industry guest speakers who share their trusted risk expertise and perspectives. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple iTunes, Spotify, or your preferred podcast platform. New episodes are released weekly, and a transcript of each episode can be found at Synergistic.com. And now for the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our webinar on preparing your organization for the CMS 2020 interoperability rule for providers. This is Marty Arvin with Synergestec, and I'm here with my colleague, Mark Pasquale, to talk about this topic. Just a brief introduction to myself. I've been in healthcare for 30 plus years, and 22 of those I've been in healthcare compliance with a focus on privacy, information security, research, and general compliance. I've been very active with the Healthcare Compliance Association and have been in-house as a compliance officer and privacy officer. I'm going to turn it over to my colleague, Mark, for him to give a brief introduction. Thank you, Marty. Uh, my name is Mark Pasquale. I'm with HealthLink Advisors. I've also been in the information technology industry for over 30 years, primarily focused on uh, working in the healthcare environment. Um, I currently serve as the vice president with HealthLink Advisors, responsible primarily for uh, IT strategy and governance. Thank you, Mark. You want to talk a little bit about how we're going to go through the webinar today? Sure, that would be terrific. So we have several things that we really wanted to to cover. On our agenda, we want to talk about the interoperability rule, but we really want to apply it towards providers. Uh, There are a lot of different things about the rule we're going to discuss. We really want to focus on the providers, then we'll kind of wrap it up with some recommendations that we have for you and your organization. So some important things to know uh, really what's transpired is that the the 21st Century Cures Act was signed into law in December of 2016. Its primary purpose was to streamline the drug and device approval process to bring treatments to market faster. There's two sections of this law, section 4003, that focused on interoperability where section 4004 focused on the information blocking related to the exchange of patient's health information. We covered the ONC rule on information blocking in our last webinar. So to support the 21st Century Cures Act, CMS and ONC issued regulations to provide guidance on this topic. So we're going to focus today on the CMS interoperability rule. So we're going to go through and talk about the purpose of the rule, who's really impacted, and then the key dates that you really need to keep in mind. The the dates are shifting, um, primarily due to COVID-19, but it's important that we go through the key dates for you so you understand what you need to do to make sure that your organization is compliant with the rule. So let's do a quick review of the purpose of the rule. The Office of the National Coordinator, or you'll hear us refer to that as ONC, has identified five key purposes for the rule. 
the first one is allowing patients easier access to their medical information while still supporting privacy and security, and also allowing patients the ability to, to do more shopping for their care. And to, it says to help avoid, avoid bankruptcy. And this is because a lot of patients get hit with large bills when they don't realize that they might be seeing uh, being seen in a participating hospital, but not a participating provider like an ED physician or an anesthesiologist. And they get very, very large bills and don't realize that they're going to be obligated to pay those because one or more of the individuals that they saw or who provided care to them might have been out of network. Um, it also is intended to make patient chart requests easier and ideally less expensive for the doctors and hospitals that are going to have to be producing the record while allowing the patient the option to have various choices in the software that's utilized to actually obtain that access to the system. And then the third reason is to improve patient safety to, to benefit doctors, patients, and hospitals. And this is really so that more information is appropriately shared and that continuity of care for the patient can be, can be uh, along the continuum. Uh, the fourth reason is to minimize the API development and maintenance costs because the rule does talk about standardizing that into some key uh, methodologies and protecting the IP for the health IT developers. So it wants to support that ready access through the standardized API process, but it also recognizes the need for the developer to protect their intellectual property. And then finally, the intent is to maximize innovation and transparency in healthcare for all Americans. So these are, again, some of the key factors and the basis on which they promulgated the rule. Mark, you want to talk a little bit about the interoperability and the conditions of participation? Sure. That was a great overview of the purpose of the rule. And the, uh, the CMS rule, uh, as far as the... Um, uh, the CMS rule modified the, the Medicare and Medicaid hospital conditions of participation to require hospitals which utilize an EHR to send notifications of a patient's ADT to certain providers. Uh, these providers include the patient's PCP, medical group, or uh, possibly a post-acute care service provider with whom the patient has an established care relationship. So your hospital may be may also be required to send the ADT information to other practitioner organizations as requested by the patient. So we'll be discussing more about the transmission requirements later in this webinar. Thank you, Mark. And there are also some provisions for uh, CMS to publicly report information about organizations that might not be compliant with the rule. So there'll be a process for them to report organizations who are potentially data blocking based on how each of those provider organizations submit their attestations under the Promoting Interoperability Program or what used to be called the Meaningful Use Program. CMS will also publicly report providers who don't, who don't list or update their digital contact information on the National Plan and Provider Immuneration System. Again, that's what allows third-party applications to more easily connect to the electronic medical record and retrieve data. Now, I just want to point out one, uh, one slight thing. Most of the people listening to this will probably know what ADT means, but just in case, that would be your admit, discharge, and transfer information.
So under these rules, there are a number of parties that they're applicable to. Uh, so for example, payers will be responsible for allowing patients to access their claims, explanation of benefit, and other information through third-party device applications. They'll also be responsible for sharing data with other payers so that the information will be more readily accessible. Payers will be obligated to share electronic contact information under the FIRE endpoint provisions. And payer, they'll also support access to available services that are billed appropriately the first time. And that means that the, those claims that might have issues may not be available, just to be clear. And states have to exchange enrollee data for individuals that are eligible, the, the medi medi dual eligible patients. They're eligible for both Medicare and Medicaid. And it's transitioning that from a monthly to a daily basis. Now, the applicability of the rule, who's going to be impacted by this? Well, for the interoperability rule that's specific to payers, it is specific to Medicare Advantage plans, Medicaid and CHIP fee-for-service programs, Medicaid managed care plans, the CHIP managed care plans, and then any qualified health plan issuers under the FFE programs. So this is not specifically applicable to every single payer, although I will and I do anticipate that most payers are going to be transitioning to this, recognizing the, the benefit that it will provide to getting the information more broadly accessible to help support that patient care and payment for that care. Now, under the conditions of participation, that's applicable to, as Mark mentioned, all Medicare participating hospitals and all Medicare participating critical access hospitals. So for those rare hospitals that don't participate in Medicare uh, and are not a critical access hospital, these conditions of participation provisions would not be applicable to them. So again, that's anticipated to be somewhat of a rare instance, but recognize that Arguably, it's not applicable to every single hospital that's out there. Now, when we look at some of the key dates, the key dates here, the rule was published May 1st, both rules, the interoperability rule and the information blocking rule that we talked about in the prior webinar. The compliance date is the same for both rules when you look at the specific provisions in the Federal Register, but there has been a notice that the enforcement discretion will be exercised and based on that exercise of enforcement discretion, the, the date that enforcement will begin will be May 1st of 20, 2021. Now that's at this time. Uh, of course, as COVID continues and things could change, you'll just wanna keep an eye on that. And then we mentioned that we're only gonna focus on providers for this webinar, but just be aware that there are additional dates under the regulation that are applicable to payers. Yeah, that's a really good point uh, to all of the organizations that you said were impacted, there's a series of deadlines that indicate when payers should be in compliance with capabilities uh, that include the patient access API, as well as the payer-to-payer -payer communication requirements. Um, for, however, as you mentioned, for providers, the key date to focus on is the compliance date for the ADT communication capability, which was originally scheduled for six months post the finalization of the rule. Uh, the compliance date had been pushed, has been pushed now to May 21st, 2021, due to the COVID-19 pandemic. So let's talk a little bit about the key concerns 
uh, and considerations for providers. As we previously discussed, the CMS rule modified the Medicare and Medicaid hospital conditions of participation to require hospitals that have an EHR to send notifications of a patient's ADT data to certain providers. The, the notifications are really intended to focus on sending information to providers uh, such as the PCP or uh, for follow-up care or other organizations that need to receive notification of the patient's status for treatment, uh, care coordination, or quality improvement purposes. There is a standard HL7 ADT message format that's been used in healthcare for many years. However, uh, in the rule, CMS is, does not specify a standard for the message content, how it is formatted, or how it's delivered at this point. It's important to note that if the hospital and patient cannot identify a provider to share the notification with, the hospital is therefore not required to send a notification for that patient's specific encounter. So CMS has also specified that your current EMR system uh, must have the technical capability to generate a basic ADT message, which really all certified EHRs do. So determining your method and the process you use will be key. So there, since the standard really hasn't been defined yet, you can actually define a standard within your organization and leverage that within your operational workflows. For an example, um, your EMR should currently have the ability to send secure patient data to physicians or facilities at the time of discharge using direct messaging, as that was a meaningful use requirement. Many organizations have even gone uh, forward with issuing direct addresses to their medical staff or others in, in their care community uh, just for that purpose. So you may, you may also want to consider using a health information exchange or potentially the new FHIR API capabilities within your EMR to facilitate this transmission. So regardless of delivery mechanism, you will need to, to take a look at and update your operational workflows to meet the new requirement. So Marty, can we talk a little bit about the uh, the specifics regarding the conditions, uh, the conditions of participation changes? Certainly. Um, so when you think about this, as Mark already mentioned, this is for that continuum of care. And for the most part, it's, it's tied to what is happening with the patient when either they get registered in the hospital's emergency department. So again, thinking through when the patient comes in, you're going to have to notify and that PCP might be interested that their patient has been admitted to the emergency department. If they've actually been admitted to the hospital as an inpatient, because uh, as we all recall, the emergency department is outpatient care. And then of course, as Mark already mentioned, that discharge or transfer of the patient. So if they're discharged to home, then you might need to notify the PCP, potentially the home health provider, um, or if they're transferred to a skilled nursing facility or to a nursing home or to an, another pay, place for care, then you need to notify the PCP and, and others as identified by the patient. And that's what the notification is too. It, the three areas that the rule provides for are any applicable post-acute care service providers and suppliers. So for example, that home health or hospice care or something like that, or a DME supplier to the primary care physician 
and to other practitioners as identified by the patient. So the patient might ask you to send information to their cardiologist or their endocrinologist or their orthopod. Uh, and so you have to be prepared to send that to any of those providers. Mark, anything you want to add to that? Uh, that's, that's a great summary. I think that as we indicated in the third bullet that the notification provisions are only applicable to hospitals that really have the current technical capability. They specified HL7251 in the rule, which is the standard HL7 format used for uh, ADT uh, information exchange, which has been in place for a very, very long time now. Um, so they're basically saying if you don't have that capability, you're not subject to this condition. But if you do have the capability, and as I mentioned, most EMRs do, all certified EMRs do, that you are responsible for making sure that you utilize that type of capability to exchange the information with the uh, organizations we've previously discussed. So just to continue on that, while it, the rule says you have to notify these individuals, there there are entities, there are some provisions around that. So the notice has to be permissible under applicable federal and state laws. And this is where it could get tricky, particularly for larger organizations or organizations that sit on the border of a state because you may have patients who have one state law that's applicable to their information and patients who have other state laws that are applicable to their information. So you really need to think through and understand um, what that may mean for your organization or what that may mean for that particular data type. Like if you have data that falls under the, the federal substance abuse or substance use disorder program, the SAMHSA program, then there may be additional provisions around that. And the notice cannot be uh, inconsistent with the patient's expressed privacy preferences. So if the patient has expressly told you, I don't want the information shared with my primary care provider, then you're not permitted to share it or not required to share it through the provisions of the ADT notifications. And again, it's only, as Mark has already mentioned, only applicable to those hospitals that use the HL7 2.5.1. Uh, Mark, any additional comments around that other than uh, what we've already discussed? I think you made a great point on the state laws. Um, there are some states that when they, for health information exchange there, they may be opt in or opt out. Uh, for some states, they actually have uh, patients that are opt-in. They have them sign specific forms that allow them to exchange information with specific organizations only. Um, so you'll need to to make sure that your your team is uh, up to date on what your state laws are and what the requirements you may have to um, adhere to 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 adhere to the laws within your state on information exchange. Very important point. And then just to, to do a quick wrap up for some of the recommendations, um, obviously you wanna stay current on policies and enforcement changes. As I mentioned earlier and Mark reiterated, the COVID-19 pandemic has resulted in a six month extension of enforcement discretion from the compliance date and that could change. So just keep an eye on that and make sure you're tracking it. Obviously, you should be getting ready for the, these provisions and being ready to be compliant with the rule, uh, ideally November 2nd, but no later than May 1st of next year, even if that date gets extended. 
uh, formalize the process to respond to any data access requests and evaluating those against each of the exception criteria that's under the information blocking rule. Uh, review and update as applicable any current policies or procedures that may be relevant here. So you're going to have to do a broad swipe of your policies and procedures to ensure you've identified all those that might be impacted and if needed made any appropriate updates. You might identify that you have to draft and finalize new policies and procedures because there's not a current process or practice in place. And so it's really going to be up to you to decide whether something is incorporated into a current policy or whether you think it's appropriate and necessary to draft a complete new one. And then also ensure that you have the appropriate documentation criteria included in all of the relevant policies and procedures. Uh, we talked about this in the information blocking webinar and it's equally true here. If you're not going to share ADT data, for example, because you, you are complying with the patient's wishes, you want to make sure that that's clearly documented somewhere so that someone doesn't come back later and say you violated the rule by not sharing the information when in fact you were following the preference and you know if patients don't remember making the preference or perhaps you know it's to their advantage to deny making the preference and there's nothing documented then it's going to get into the typical he said she said so as with everything we do in any sort of compliance realm document 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 Mark, any final thoughts on our recommendations or anything you want to add? Uh, those are all great points. I think in the information blocking webinar that, that we recently did, uh, we talked about the, a group that could come together uh, that you may already have a team that's, that's built that has uh, representation like your, your CIO, your chief compliance officer, your chief privacy officer, your chief information security officer, but to have that group that's looking at the information blocking rules to also incorporate this into their overall planning. So that same group that was coordinated for that can be used for this as well. Thank you, Mark. That's a great, great point. Thank you, everyone. We really appreciate you taking the time to listen to us today, and we hope you found this helpful. Uh, thanks, Marty. Yes, thank you all very much for taking the time uh, to, uh, to listen and to watch our webinar today. Uh, we wanted to provide this information to you in a succinct manner to help you make the, the decisions for your organization. And if you'd like more information on the information blocking or interoperability rules, you can visit Synergistic at Synergistic.com or you can email us at sales at Synergistic.com. Mark, how can they get more information from HealthLink Advisors? You can also visit us at HealthLinkAdvisors.com or email us at proveninsights at healthlinkadvisors.com for more information on the information blocking interoperability rules. And thank you to our listeners for listening. We'll catch you next week.